the term transgender is commonly credited to being coined by Virginia Prince, who um, coined the term very specifically to refer to, I guess, what would be in the current nomenclature, a cross-dresser, um, and wrote a book called The Transgenderist and His Wife, um, with the specific goal of making very clear that as far as Virginia Prince was concerned, um, a transgender person was a heterosexual uh, person. And oddly enough, in Virginia Prince's definition, it specifically meant people who did not take hormones. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Broadview. I'm Lisa Selen Davis. And today I'm talking to Bob Ostertag, author of Sex Science Self, A Social History of Estrogen, Testosterone, and Identity. It's one of the best books about gender I've ever read, and one I'm determined to get more readers for. Bob and I talk about where beliefs about gender, chemicals, and technology come from, the checkered past of doctors pushing hormones as miracle cures for many things other than gender dysphoria, and the early history of homophobia and trans activism. Bob Ostertag has published more than 20 albums of music, six books, and a feature film. His writings on contemporary politics have been published on every continent and in many languages, beginning with his work as a journalist covering the Civil War in El Salvador in the 1980s. His books cover a wide range of topics, from labor unions to migration to estrogen and testosterone. He's performed at music, film, and multimedia festivals around the globe, and his musical collaborators include the Kronos Quartet, postmodernist John Zorn, heavy metal star Mike Patton, transgender cabaret icon Justin Vivian Bond, DJ Rose, and many others, and he currently hosts two podcasts, one of queer oral history and another on poverty in America. Here's my interview with Bob Ostertag. So Bob Ostertag, thank you so much for talking to me. I'm a huge fan of your book. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm quite happy to be here. So the first thing I, I want to ask you about, I have a lot I want to ask you about, but um, you talk about this in the opening of your book, but I want to hear more about how it is that you came to write about the history of estrogens and testosterone. Well, I'm, I'm passionate about history. I've written other history books and um, writing history books is something I can do. And um, I, I'm a gay man. I live in San Francisco. I'm, um, deeply embedded in the LGBT community. And um, as more and more people in my social circle began taking hormones, um, I would ask them, you know, what, who owns that and who makes money when you buy that? And was that invented or discovered? And what are the downsides and what are the upsides? And I, I was struck by how little information of that sort um, 
the, the people who were my, my friends who were taking those um, substances had. And I thought, well, this is something I can do. I can, I can uh, write a book of the, of the history of this. So I wrote a book. Of, it, it's a history of what people have believed about estrogen and testosterone, how they acted on those beliefs and how those beliefs changed over time. And so, you know, the, the set of beliefs we have about those substances now didn't fall out of the sky fully formed. They have a history like just about everything else in human culture. And so, um, so that, was, that was my motivation to sort of provide a resource um, to help my friends and others uh, think uh, in a more informed manner about these drugs. You write that there was a lack of knowledge among the people prescribing these drugs and the people ingesting them, and also a lack of curiosity. Why do you think that is? Well, coming out of AIDS activism in the 80s, you know, AIDS activism was really predicated on the idea that ordinary folks with, without specialized educations can assimilate complex medical data and make informed choices. And it was taken for granted uh, among the AIDS activist community that, um, that information was power and more information was better. And the more information you had on your medical options, um, that was a good thing. And it was a bit striking um, that I didn't find a similar intellectual milieu amongst um, people uh, taking hormones. Why that is, um, that's a big question, why? But it's certainly what I found. Yeah. Your book is about contradictions in so many places. And mm -hmm. I think it was the first, I, I first read it in, um, I think in 20, in 2018. Mm -hmm. And it was astonishing. And I, and, and so many, there are so many factoids from the book that are stuck in my head. The first one, the first contradiction that really floored me was the idea that gays and, and lesbians fought hard not to be medicated for their predilections and these drugs that were used to punish gay people are now being used to treat trans people. Yeah, not only punish, but, but treat. Um, the, first, the first use of testosterone when it was synthesized was to attempt to cure male homosexuality was considered that male homosexuality was a deficiency disease where that was the assumption at the time that if you were a male homosexual, it meant your testicles weren't producing enough testosterone. And so you could cure male homosexuality by administering testosterone. That didn't go so well. <laughs> um, uh, of course, now we would hardly imagine that we would cure male homosexuality by giving male homosexuals testosterone. <laughs> in fact, uh, many gay men 
take testosterone as a sexual stimulant, actually. And, and this is also something that um, you can find repeatedly through the history of estrogen and testosterone, that the substances are uh, initially provided for uh, one sort of treatment and then, um, and then the opposite happens. Um, so when testosterone didn't work to cure male homosexuality, they switched to giving male homosexuals estrogen. Um, it's kind of a, you know, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what um, sticks kind of thing. But yes, um, the, uh, there is a long history of particularly male homosexuals. You know, lesbians get significantly less attention from the medical community, which is probably to their benefit in many ways. Because, um, you know, as we all know, men are the most important thing in the world. And so we all have to think constantly about men and, and you know, women's problems are of a lesser order. And so, uh, um, yeah, for, for, for decades, um, uh, men were administered um, hormones either as treatment or as, as punishment. Um, there was a period where um, men were given a choice of prison or estrogen. Um, for, for homosexual offenses, and and yes, um, the idea, uh, the idea that, or or the claim that there's nothing wrong with homosexuals, that and, and that the only thing homosexuals need from doctors is to be left alone, and um, you know we are our own experts, thank you very much. Um, this was a fundamental claim of gay liberation, of the gay liberation movement of the 60s and 70s and led to um, the, uh, homosexuality finally being deleted from the DSM. And of course now, um, you know, uh, gender dysphoria before that gender identity disorder were the result of activism to get into the DSM. So it's a, fascinating picture of, of one set of activists trying to get out of the DSM and another set getting into the DSM. And so as a historian, when you write a history, you have to put some kind of bounds on your subject matter. So it poses an interesting question. Is this, is this really two different communities with two very different um, needs? Or is this one community with very contradictory feelings about medicine and the medical establishment. Um, it's an interesting question that I think there's no simple answer to. Well, that leads me to two, two things that I learned about from your book that I want you to talk about. One, one is how the T got connected to the LGB, but the other is about the overt homophobia in early trans activism. One thing that's very interesting to me is how, so synthetic testosterone became available in 1937. It was available for purchase. And um, people assigned female at birth would have had the option of taking testosterone from 1937 on. And it wasn't until the late 90s, early 2000s 
that um, the idea of taking testosterone, skipping genital surgery, and becoming a trans man became a thing. So why did it take 60 years um, if that had been an option all along? That's a very interesting question to me. Um, and um, if we go, if we look at the history, you know, the testosterone, um, even more than estrogen, testosterone, I'm not really answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go back to it. Keep going and then we'll go back to my question. <laughs> you know, as we said before, men are the most important thing in the world. So if we can chemically isolate what men makes men men, we have the most important substance in the world, right? Yeah. And so this, uh, this excited the medical imagination to no end. And the, the race to synthesize testosterone really created the, the structure of corporate, pharma, of corporate pharmaceutical product manufacturers. It's changed a little bit now with, the, with biotech, but until biotech came along, the corporations that dominated international pharmaceutical production were the ones who were created and you know ballooned up to scale through um, synthesis of testosterone and of estrogen. And um, so testosterone was kind of a funny um, drug if you want to even call it a drug because um, most drugs are discovered because you have a disease in front of you and you're looking for something to treat the disease with. There was no disease with testosterone. Um, once the 19th century was a, the century of nerves, you know, and, and um, nervous disorders because we didn't, we couldn't see into the component parts of blood enough to understand what endocrinology was. So it's only at the end of the 19th century that chemistry gets to the point that we can see, oh, there's, it's not just nerves, there's something in blood that circulates around that regulates um, physiology and behavior. What might those things be and where might they come from? The first thing they thought of was testicles because of the long history of castration of barnyard animals and eunuchs. And so, um, they hypothesized that there was something that came out of testicles that made men men and dollar signs, you know, went off. <laughs> Whoever, you know, if you could get that thing that made men men, you were gonna, who knew what, that, that was gonna be good for any, everything. Who knew what it was gonna be good for, but it was gonna be good for a lot. Then they finally um, synthesized it and, um, they couldn't find a disease that it was useful for. And um, it became the miracle drug without a disease. Mm. Um, and basically went on the shelf for 60 years. Ironically, one of the things that got testosterone off the shelf was AIDS, because one of the first things that testosterone proved actually useful for was AIDS wasting syndrome. Mm. And so um, in places like San Francisco and New York, doctors started um, giving testosterone prophylactically to all their AIDS patients um, to prevent wasting syndrome. And then um, 
the guys at the gym who didn't have HIV began to notice that the guys who did have HIV were muscling up more than they were. And, uh, uh -huh. and then at the same time, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the bodybuilding thing. And so actually testosterone sort of leaked into the queer community mm. through the AIDS epidemic and through um, bodybuilding. Mm. And, um, and that's the 80s. And so by the 90s um, is, is when you know, trans men start to appear. And that's not to say that there haven't been, I don't want to get into a whole discussion about have there always been trans men or not or whatever, but trans men appeared in the 90s if the definition we're using of trans men is people assigned female at birth who, skip genital surgery and go for testosterone um and yeah so that it's a curious history also uh, um at around that same time was when the fda approved direct to consumer advertising for for, for prescription drugs and um if you're a drug company and you're sitting there thinking what drug would um would the market respond well to in television advertising? Uh, testosterone really, really uh, it's easy to advertise on late night TV. You know, you can show those muscles and talk about sex drive and boost your um, testosterone. And now, now testosterone, th this is another thing I tried to point out in the book is um, testosterone and estrogen now are hardly matters that are limited to the gay community or I mean th these are substances that are as American as apple pie there's MBAs you know people get their their masters in business and they go on a little bit of tea so that when they walk into the boardroom they make a better impression we've got high school athletes taking tea we've got I mean everywhere it's it's um Getting to where you can't be a proper cis man or cis woman without amping up your um, masculinity or femininity mm. a little bit. Well, let's go back even further then to where the idea came from that masculinity and femininity were contained in chemicals secreted by the body. Let's go back to, to, to how we came you, you said your book is about these changing beliefs about these chemicals. So mm -hmm. when did we start thinking, oh, gender is located in these chemicals that are produced in our body? How did that happen? Well, you can go all the way back to ancient times and, and um, animal castration, and in particular, male castration. It's a fascinating history that um, in numerous places around the world independently um, arrived at the same sort of political conclusion that if you were if you were in a political system in which absolute power resided in the body of a man and the number one duty of that man was to sire a male offspring <clears throat> those political systems were um, prone to palace intrigue and 
coup and murder and so forth. So one way, if you wanted to safeguard the man at the top, at the apex of the system, you surrounded him with men who could not sire a male offspring because they could not aspire to the throne. So uh, numerous cultures independently around the world concluded that the best way to do that would be to cut the balls off of all the men who were around the ruler. So sultans and pharaohs and emperors all over the world were surrounded. At one point, allegedly during the Ming dynasty, the uh, Chinese emperor had 100,000 eunuchs in his employment at one, at one time. So um, <clears throat> with ovaries, it's very different because they're not just hanging out there flapping in the wind available for everybody to see. In fact, they're kind of hard to find. And, you know, surgical procedures had to get sophisticated to a certain level to even find the ovaries. So that's the... For, for women, the equivalent was the uterus, which was far easier to find. Um, but yes, yeah, so since there was this long history of male castration, and it was understood that male castration had both physiological and behavioral consequences. And so that's why when we um, got to where we could begin to analyze the chemical components of blood. And we began to understand that the chemical composition of blood was connected to physiology and behavior. That the first thing we thought of was that must come from testicles. So it was hypothesized that there must be something that comes from a testicle that make, and that's what makes a man a man. And of course, now we know that the endocrine system is supremely complex. And even now we don't have anything like a full understanding. There's many, many hormones produced by many glands and glands produce more than one hormone. And some hormones are metabolized into other hormones. <clears throat> so if you talk to an endocrinologist, the idea that um, there's a chemical essence of masculinity and femininity, and that and those re reside in you know single um, chemical substances, they, they would say that that's ridiculous. But it it lives on in our culture, and and of course our medicine and our doctors are as are as embedded in our culture as everyone else is. So for, for example, if a man takes tests or if a man or if a person assigned male at birth or whoever we wanna call this guy, um, if man takes testosterone, um, you know, his muscles will grow, but you know, his testicles will shrink and his breasts will develop. So if you start out with the idea that testosterone is the chemical essence of masculinity, then the muscle growth is the expected result and the testicle shrinking and the breast growth are unexpected side effects. But if you don't start out with the assumption that testosterone is male, if you just start out with the assumption that testosterone is a growth hormone like many other growth hormones, then the 
uh, consequences of it don't have to be divided into unexpected consequences and the thing that it's supposed to be doing. I was really surprised to discover that in your book, that testosterone is just one of several quote unquote male androgens, which you're, which you're skeptical of the idea that there are male and female hormones anyway, and that there is no one substance called estrogen, but rather there are, there are three estrogens circulating in, in all bodies, but more in female bodies. Right. And, and then one other thing that gets produced generally during pregnancy, which I'm forgetting, but, and yet we say testosterone and estrogen, which I, I just find fascinating why we, <laughs> there's four of them, but we pretend there's one and then there are many androgens, but we only ever talk about T. Yeah, yeah, it's an apples, it's an apples and oranges thing. We, we should be talking about androgens and estrogens and testosterone is one androgen. Um, but instead we talk about testosterone and estrogens and it is an apple and oranges um, thing. And they're also, um, you know, uh, testosterone is a, you know, is a specific chemical. You can synthesize it in a lab and, you know, something is either testosterone or it's not. Um, estrogens are very different. They're defined as um, anything that affects the estrus cycle is an estrogen. It turns out there's estrogens all over the place. Half the food we eat has estrogenic properties and many um, synthetic chemicals have estrogenic properties. And, and there, there's not testosterone-like things lying all around the earth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a very different, very different thing. You know, another um, great example to show the irony of, of conceptualizing um, testosterone and estrogen as, as male and female is um, estrogen. Um, they thought about harvesting estrogens from animals and they looked around the, the earth that we live in uh, for sources of estrogen and they found that um, in the uh, animal kingdom, the richest source of estrogen is the urine of stallions, that icon of male virility. Turns, turns out stallions have, you know, estrogen coming out their ears. And- uh, Or at least their vast deference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, the stallions, the stallions didn't take very well to having their urine harvested. And so they, then they discovered that a pregnant mare is the second best. Even a pregnant mare has less estrogen in its urine than a stallion. But the pregnant that, mare- That, by the way, is one of the factoids that I, I, um, I did cite you, but I, I got from your book that I put in mine because that- I just, that just stuck in my head. You know, we've got these ideas about this is, this is the boy kind and this is the girl kind. And, you know, they're in a relationship with each other inside our body. And there are different relationships inside of other animal bodies. And those relationships are changing constantly, which if you are a middle-aged female, you understand really well because there's, you're going through crazy shifts all the time. Um, and it's, 
it seems so simplified in our discourse right now, but it's, but it also, there's been, you, your book really catalogs, you know, one, once we're able to synthesize these hormones and, and once we're able to understand that there are these things called hormones, these chemicals that affect change in your body, then there's, you, you talked about there wasn't until recently this vast, these vast medical uses for testosterone, but they, there were people trying to figure out how can we, okay, we've got the drug, how can we make money off it? And, and, and that was a, another kind of shocking thing to me are the stories about Magnus Hirschfeld and, and Walter Benjamin, these kind of heroes of trans medicine. Harry, and Harry how Benjamin. they got, yeah, can you talk a little bit, I guess Hirschfeld comes before um, Benjamin, but about how they, how they started uh, their relationship to these, to, to hormones and, and how they came to be part of what would eventually become transgender medicine. Uh, sure, sure. And it, it, it's uh, Harry Benjamin, Walter oh. Benjamin. Uh, uh, oh my God, I said Walter Benjamin, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, Eugene Steinach was a... Um, a uh, early endocrinologist or medical researcher in Vienna in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And uh, Magnus Hirschfeld was uh, one of the first, quote, sexologists. Um, uh, so, at, at, you know, this was a time when modern medicine was really sort of taking shape. And um, there was a debate about whether sexual behavior and sexual function would be included in the domain of what would become modern medicine. So the early sexologists were, you know, crusading advocates for the idea that sexual behavior and sexual function should be, uh, would properly be included in the medical domain. Hirschfeld was in Berlin and he's, um, you know, commonly thought of as sort of the godfather of LGBT rights. He started this institute that became sort of the precursor of so many things, the precursor of all the LGBT centers we have now, the precursor of the gender care clinics we have now, um, the precursor of the human rights campaign. <laughs> I mean, he really did... Uh, he was a tireless, tireless advocate of um, accumulating what he considered to be scientific knowledge about sex and sexuality, and um, also a tireless champion for what today we would call LGBT rights. And um, in that context, he was convinced that if you could show that homosexuality had a, um, a source in the body, that this would lead to greater acceptance of homosexuals in society. If you could show that it was not a moral failing and not a choice, but that gays and lesbians and trans people, et cetera, et cetera, were born that way, that this was the key to unlocking the door 
to rights for these people. So he was very interested in the work of Steinmark. Steinmark was working with rats and he did all these amazing rat experiments in, an, in a defunct amusement park in, um, in Vienna. The whole story is so out there that it, it, it it, it, it sounds like a movie and it sounds, but he, yes, in the vivarium of the old amusement park, Eugene Steinmark was taking rat testicles and implanting them into female rats and taking rat ovaries and implanting them into male rats and taking them all out and putting them all back again and upside down and sideways doing all these experiments. And he, um, he claimed to have proved that he had um, found the cause of male homosexuality in, in the testicles. And um, so uh, Hirschfeld um, jumped on this. And um, now Steinach's work was, was devastatingly criticized at the time. Um, uh, turns out measuring, you know, what, what constitutes homosexual rat behavior turns out to be a thornier issue than, uh, you know. So for example, um, you give a female rat um, testosterone and she doesn't like to be vaginal, vaginally penetrated anymore. So that was taken as a, a sign of homosexuality. But then they discovered that um, it actually causes the vagina to close quite a bit. So is that um, a cause of rat homosexuality or is that just the female rat avoiding pain? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> uh, despite all the holes in, in Steinach's uh, work, um, Hirschfeld uh, jumped on that. And um, since he had been arguing so tirelessly that the cause of homosexuality was located someplace in the body. Um, once Steinach claimed to have found it in, in dysfunctional um, testicle tissue, then Hirschfeld had no grounds on which to argue against curing it. Mm. So, and so there began to be a series of um, surgical procedures trying to cure male homosexuality by transplanting, uh, quote, normal testicles into the scrotums of homosexual men, which um, Hirschfeld supported. And, um, you know, Hirschfeld is, is, commonly celebrated as you know the original hero of yeah. lgbt rights but you if you look at the record a little more closely it's more complex than that um i think most of us would now consider um you know surgical procedures on gay men to make them straight to be rather barbaric and um and that was something that um Hirschfeld very much um, participated in and by the way, of course, when the Nazis came to power, um, the idea that gays were born that way didn't help. It actually made right. things worse. It meant that you couldn't change them and better to put them into concentration camps than to um, 
try to rectify their moral failings. So um, yes, the idea, the idea that we were born this way is going to save us turned out to be um, wildly misplaced. Yeah, it doesn't work with eugenicists. <laughs> no, no. But no. It's, it's interesting because then the work of those two men came to America, right? And, Harry and Harry, not Walter Benjamin, but uh, but Harry Benjamin. Um. <laughs> yeah, so Harry Benjamin was a Steinach disciple. That's how he, he described himself as a Steinach disciple. And uh, after the curing, after the curing male homosexuality didn't go so well, Steinach came up with another thing that actually made him world famous and quite wealthy. Um, which was he he announced that you could rejuvenate aging men by giving them a vasectomy. And um, this was the idea that, you know, that 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 hormone in there that the testicle is producing, that that's the good stuff. So instead of, you know, shooting it out into the big wide world where it does nothing for you, if you just shoot it back into yourself, then you're going to you're going to get the juice and, and aging men will feel better. better. And uh, this caught on like wildfire. Um, there were thousands of, um, the, it wasn't called a vasectomy, it was called a Steinach procedure. And there was huge um, craze in these. I think at one point there were nearly 150 doctors in New York City alone just doing Steinach procedures. Um, uh, Freud had one, thought it was great. Yates, Yates talked about his Steinach procedure. So he, he, he attributed all his later writing to the, his Steinach procedure. The Irish press started calling him the gland old man because of his uh, obsession with his Steinach procedure. Now, of course, uh, now men have double mastectomies uh, uh, so that they can avoid fathering children and nobody thinks it rejuvenates them. And if uh, the Steinach procedure had actually rejuvenated anybody, then getting a double mastectomy should rejuvenate you twice as much as getting the single one that Steinach would do. So, um, and this is another interesting thing is um, the number, so through the history of estrogen and testosterone, you know, these substances have repeatedly excited the medical imagination in a way that really no other part, I don't know of an equivalent in, another, in a different branch of medicine. And um, so there's been these, you know, medical fads or crazes or whatever you want to call them. Um, repeatedly, and the Steinach procedure was certainly one of them, where thousands and thousands of people had vasectomies all around the world, and and um, nobody complained that it didn't work. And it, it, the reason people stopped having Steinach procedures wasn't because they thought it didn't work; it was because testosterone became available. And and so why you know have a surgical procedure when you can just take a pill? Mm -hmm. um baddie's operation was an even wilder one um this was uh, a cure for female hysteria which is a whole other mm -hmm. world but, um it's estimated that in the 19th century americans spent 
that, that most of the money that Americans spent on medical care was spent on female hysteria. This, this is how common um, this quote disease was. And um, Batty, Robert Batty, this uh, doctor in Georgia announced that he could cure female hysteria by um, removing ovaries. And um, this became, the, the Batty operation became a big thing. And um, for, for curing, quote, female lunacy. And this, this also became a thing where um, women would go from doctor to doctor begging to have their ovaries removed. And doctors who refused to do it were accused of you know being what we would call now misogynist and indifferent to the needs of women and and European countries sort of competed with each other to be at the cutting edge of, of doing this and of course now um, we would think that um, having your ovary removes you know induces surgically induced menopause which is <laughs> we consider you know, an urgent medical matter that needs to be addressed. Although I wonder yeah. if also they were not, you know, stopped getting their periods and maybe that was the, some of the source of distress was, <laughs> you know, you're in physical pain, your hormones are yeah. going through a change every month and maybe some of them, but then, and, and we don't, we have no way of telling because we don't have studies to know were the men getting the vasectomies, the Steinox, were they experiencing a placebo effect or was anything actually happening? And we don't know, we don't know with the women seeking, seeking various cures for hysteria, you know, what the, what the real issue was or what actually helped. And, you know, it's interesting because there's such resistance in this country to gathering data now about transgender medicine, unless it's done in a way um, that promotes a foregone conclusion. So there's a, there's a, a resistance to the idea that there's the, the new cohort of young girls seeking to take testosterone and get top surgery and that, that there's any difference between the cohorts, it's all one thing. And there's now resistance from the American Academy of Pediatrics to do a systematic evidence review. And just going back to my first question about why the lack of curiosity, it's, it's, it seems to be part of the story the whole time of needing to believe, needing to believe in these substances, needing to believe they can cure what ails you, even if you're not sure what they do or what's ailing you, right? I mean, that, that's, a, that's an interesting part of this story. And maybe that's part of what happens when you get the cure before you get the problem. You know, you're going right to um, what I think of as the, as, as the core of my book there. You know, I, I wrote that book, I was writing that book in what, 2013 and 2014. So, the, the decibel level of the debate around um, estrogen and testosterone and all issues transgender was much you know lower decibel level back then than it is now and um, and I'm not an endocrinologist and I, I I don't teach gender studies in some university and you know I, I I get interested in the topic and I research it and I write a book about it and then I go on so 
after having published that book, I, I, I haven't sort of maintained a presence in the, um, in the debate, uh, in the LGBT debates uh, in the, over the ensuing years. And now that there seems to be a renewed interest in my book, and I thank you very much for being part of that. I really appreciate it. It's so hard to, the decibel level around this discussion is so high right now that it's really hard to see what one can contribute that would um, cast more light than smoke. And uh, what I hope, um, what you know, what the book shows, if you sort of step back and take a bird's eye view of the history, there have been a series of paradigms now around estrogen and testosterone where doctors have made remarkable claims that captured the public imagination and led to widespread engagement with medical procedures that were subsequently viewed as horrendous errors and huge medical black eyes and barbaric and having injured uh, many people. And then the cycle has repeated itself. And um, that's really, more than anything else, that's what I hope you know, people would take from that book. Now that's just the history. That that's what happened. You know, um, mm -hmm. that's that, that's historic fact. That's what happened. So um, maybe what you take from that is, you know, thank goodness I'm living at the time where doctors finally got it all right, mm -hmm. and, and I can get my gender care and and. Isn't this wonderful that I'm not living at the time of Batty's operation or Steinoff procedures? I'm living at the time of, of, um, of you know, 2022 when we finally figured out how this stuff works and how we can really use it in an effective way to enrich human life. Mm -hmm. And but you could also take from that story that perhaps the set of beliefs we have about these substances now will prove as transitory as each previous paradigm. And um, maybe the story suggests at the least that we have more humility um, in our certainties about um, our beliefs about these these substances. To me, history doesn't tell you do this and don't do that. You know, history, that's not what history does. You know, we can't, but history really, I think history can teach us humility uh, in our beliefs and to always be aware that the way we see the world is not the way people other times saw the world and you know we might yeah our our views may be transitory as well yeah well i don't find much humility um in the quote-unquote debate or culture war around this issue i find both the left and right or the most vocal voices on the left and right um avowing certainty 
And I know that, you know, I am also not an endocrinologist or a gender studies professor, but I'm not sure that I would look to either of those professions for that much clarity either. And mm -hmm. in fact, I would look to the people who are saying, um, there's a lot we don't know. And, and those are the people with the, to me, those are the people with the wisdom. And I'm always trying to lead with, look, I'm a journalist who's listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different voices over the past five years of researching this and tried to synthesize them, which is my job. And then got to the point where certain voices could not be synthesized with other voices. And those are the voices that try to discourage any kind of question or dissent. And they're very frightening to someone like me who's not necessarily tough. So I, but I am trying to stick with the most humble people and get information from those people or people I disagree with, but who are willing to talk. And that's actually been the most exciting part of doing this research is talking to people I disagree with. But I'm thinking back to what you said about these chemicals over and over um, exciting the medical imagination. And I'm wondering about the lack of humility in the medical community right now. And I'm wondering if part of it is that, I, I know that many of these gender clinicians who believe that we don't need to diagnose children and young people with gender dysphoria and that trans people know who they are and we should just give them what they want or need as if we can know that, um, but that they, they feel they're saving children's lives. But I also wonder if it's something like incredibly powerful. It's kind of the most godlike thing you can do to attempt to change the sex of a person. I can't think of anything more godlike in medicine than that, than that. And I wonder if that's part of the excitement. Well, that goes all the way back. Um, I wonder if I have that quote handy, I may. So uh, the most popular science writer in mid 20th century America was Paul de Croof. And in 1945, so this is just um, seven years after the synthesis of testosterone, he wrote a book called The Male Hormone. And it was excerpted in Reader's Digest, reviewed in the New York Times. And um, yes, he, he, uh, he talked of the heroic lives of the chemists associated with testosterone, describing them as, quote, rough and tumble death-fighting types toiling with bull testicles in Chicago, extracting oceans of urine in Gottingen, and dabbling dangerously with cholesterol in Zurich. These were manly men who ate steak, drank whiskey, and with Herculean efforts moved geriatrics from, quote, a sissy science to quote, a medical practice of total vitality. Yes, de Kroof declared, sex is chemical and the male sex chemical seem to be the key not only to sex, but to enterprise, courage, and vigor. Manhood is chemical, manhood is testosterone. Mm. So that kind of certainty and, um, I mean, we were talking about humility and and certainty, and um, 
Yeah, th this is the book that announced testosterone to the world. In fact, this is the book that um, Christine Jorgensen read and um, decided to go for a sex change. Can we go back? We didn't talk about, about Harry Benjamin. I don't think he was Christine <laughs> Jorgensen's doctor, though. but I, I want to go yeah. back to he first started... I don't know if he read that that book himself, but he first started, he started as a disciple of Steinick, you said, and he was doing rejuvenation surgeries. Yes. So, yes, so how did he yeah. become the, the American father of transgender medicine? How did he go from that to? Benjamin moved to New York City and, and sort of became the European in New York who had a direct connection to Steinach. And he opened a, a rejuvenation clinic where he uh, did vasectomies. And then when uh, Steinach procedures uh, sort of fell from grace and, um, and became sort of a medical laughingstock, he, he was sort of the last one, even after Steinach himself backed away from it, um, uh, Benjamin soldiered on, but with less and less clientele. And um, so he was sort of looking for, you know, the next thing that was going to keep him in business. And, um, and it became, uh, you know, what we now think of as transgender care. And in fact, um, the professional association of, of uh, transgender care and medical professionals uh, was originally known as the Harry Benjamin, I think the Harry Benjamin Society or the Harry Benjamin Association or something along those lines. Um, <clears throat> yeah, very curious history. Harry Benjamin does not, um, his uh, trajectory does not stand up well to historical scrutiny which is probably why that organization is now called PATH instead of the Harry Benjamin Association. Um, he's fondly remembered in the trans community because he championed access to um, surgery and hormones. Um, but uh, his medical legacy is, um, is mixed to say the least. That seems true of so many people historically in this field, and that some some of them were motivated by trying to create space and 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 suffering, and others were just looking for a buck. But many of them are, uh, when you scrutinize their beliefs or their practices, they don't pass muster anymore. Yes, and you know, in the history that I wrote, I try very much to not impute motives, like who was just trying to make a buck and who was trying to practice honest medicine, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we know what happened, and we know who got treated with what, and we know all the damages that were done in various ways. Um, well, yeah. Okay. So we can't know motives. And I think that's important. But another point that you make is that 
once the T gets added to the to the LGB, and once you know you write that that the term LGBT community entered U.S. presidential discourse at the end of 2008, and at the exact same time, that's when annual sales of testosterone products hit one billion dollars. Can you can you talk a little bit about? how the tea got added and when and when and why. I think it's really interesting to hear from a historical perspective, both how early trans activism had this tinge of homophobia and then later trans activism kind of had the opposite, which is we're all, we're, we're the same and we're under the same umbrella. So I'd love to hear you just talk, talk about what you wrote in the book about that. Sure. So, um... The term transgender is commonly credited to being coined by Virginia Prince, who um, coined the term very specifically to refer to, I guess, what would be in the current nomenclature, a cross-dresser, um, and wrote a book called The Transgenderist and His Wife, um, with the specific goal of making very clear that as far as Virginia Prince was concerned, um, a transgender person was a heterosexual uh, person. And oddly enough, in Virginia Prince's definition, it specifically meant people who did not take hormones. Um, and of course, the first real high profile transsexual, to use the word that was used by uh, herself at the time was Christine Jorgensen, who, you know, adopted a very um, conservative mom and apple pie um, politics, supported the Vietnam War, and, um, and neither of these two, you know, early high profile, what we would now call trans people, wanted anything to do with homosexuals. And in fact, loudly proclaimed their disgust at homosexuals and homosexual practices and suggested that um, homosexuals might be sick in a way that people who sought, sought to change their sex were, were not. Again, using the terms that Christine Jorgensen herself used at the time uh, she did not talk about changing her gender. She talked about changing her sex. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so it wasn't until the 1990s um, and the, the um, appearance of the trans men um, who were um, people who had um, been present in the, L in the queer community um, as lesbians and then um, began testosterone and identified as trans men, but didn't think that that meant they were no longer part of this community that they had been part of before going on the meds. Um, that um, the T began to migrate over uh, to the LGB. Here's another thing I'd like to say about those kinds of identities. 
in in the current in the way the current debate is framed there's this whole debate about are trans people real like is there really a kind of human called trans and is that kind of person a present day invention a new kind of person or can we go back in history and find them throughout history and before I address that, I want to say, I think of myself as a gay man, and there's a very similar debate about gay men. Mm -hmm. Did gay men appear for the first time on the world stage in the 1960s, or were they always present? It was uh, the French philosopher Michel Foucault who proposed that um, while there had always been men having sex with men and women having sex with women, the idea that those kinds of behaviors constituted, constituted you as a specific kind of person right. that was different from other kinds of people and expressed a core truth about yourself. Mm -hmm. Foucault argued that that was a very modern invention and ever since then, there's been a debate about that, and the debate is completely unresolved. There's a critique of Foucault that says, well, he's far too, too focused on, on Europe and ancient Rome and ancient Greece and European uh, culture pre-Christianity, and that if he looked at, say, indigenous cultures in North America, um, his theories would have fallen completely flat on their face. But we can look around the world and find pl places and times in history where sexual cultures seem to be remarkably close to ours. And we can find ones that are very, very far away where... Um, what we would call bisexuality or omnisexuality or polysexuality these days would be assumed to be, you know, everywhere. So I always want to preface anything I say about are trans people real with acknowledging that I'm not sure gay people are real, and yet I'm a gay man. <laughs> Right, or that it's yeah. that it's automatically complicated to impose modern categories and identities onto the past. That that's a problematic and difficult thing to do. I think, I think it should be part part of if we're going for intellectual humility, that would be a good place to yes. start. Yes. You write a lot in the book about kids feeling pressure to take hormones to prove that they're really trans. And even though there's this narrative that you can be trans without changing your body at all, still this idea kind of leaked into youth culture that there's a kind of litmus test. And do you think that's still happening? Do you think that now we've got the, these non-binary identities, does that potentially lift some of that pressure? Well, that's an interesting question because <clears throat> that <clears throat> the debate about whether <clears throat> hormones was a necessary rite of passage to claim a transgender identity 
um, was something that was very present in the LGBT community in San Francisco at the time I was writing that book. And I, I, I think the trans culture has largely moved on from that. And um, since I mentioned that debate in the introduction to the book, I think it gives an impression that the book is sort of dated. And, mm. and this, this is one of the reasons why when I discuss the book, I really want to stress the history and, and, and less, you know, jump into the current debates because the current debates change so quickly. And, um, but the history doesn't get out of date. The, you know, what's been did and what's been hid is, is, you know, that's the record that we're standing on. And so, yes, I don't, I don't, I, th I think the role that hormones are playing in the trans world now are quite different, but I'm not in the trans world myself. And, and I would rather um, leave that uh, discussion to, to, to somebody who thinks of themselves as trans as to what, what that role would be. So that leads me to my final question. You write, speaking of history, you write in the book that the real danger is in ruling some parts of history off limits. And you ask, can we find a way to respect those whose sense of self is deeply intertwined with particular beliefs about particular technologies while at the same time leaving those beliefs and technologies open to question? I'm just gonna answer that and say so far, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think that's what those of us who have all been, you know, you and I have been talking a little bit the past few months and, and a lot of us who are trying to investigate, understand, talk, speak the unspeakable are all trying to do that. We're trying to both respect and question. Can you talk about this danger? of ruling some parts of history off limits and why we need to know this history that you've documented so beautifully in, in your book? Yes, once you have engaged with a technology in a deep enough way that the meaning that you ascribe to that technology becomes part of your understanding of your own self of sense sense of self that it it's hard not to interpret any questioning of that meaning of the technology as an assault on your personhood mm -hmm. um, i understand that but there's no way of telling the history of estrogen and testosterone without casting doubt on the permanence of the beliefs we have about those technologies today. So in that sense, simply telling the history can be threatening both to, you know, our sense of queer culture of the moment and to a lot of people's uh, sense of selfhood, sense of personhood. So that creates, you know, a, a profound problem. Um, how do we um, respect the personhood 
and the sense of self and the choices that people have made and yet not proclaim that the whole messy, complex, screwed up history of those technologies, we, we can't just decide not to tell those stories anymore. I think in any community that is scared of its own history or trying to um, you know, stop discussion of its own history is in you know serious trouble, and and that you know that's where that's where I will plant my flag. You know, I, I all technology is up for debate and questioning. I mean, it's a hundred and six where I am today, and and you know we're dealing with climate change, we're dealing with biodiversity loss, we're dealing with you know permanent chemicals all over the face of the earth. We are living in a time of, you know, technological crisis and um, all technology is up for debate and criticism. There, there, there can't be some piece of technology that is, you know, off the table and undiscussable because um, discussion of it is hurtful mm -hmm. to to, to a subset of people. Now, I don't know how to resolve that question. It's a very, very thorny question, but it's not going away because the options that technology will provide us to alter our sense of self is only going to increase. And so, the queer community might be facing this question in a more acute way right now, but the question is coming for everyone. And wouldn't it be a beautiful contribution to human culture if the queer community could find a way to um, have this sort of discussion in a way that is sustainable. Yeah, and makes a real contribution to the health and mental health and safety and protection of the community. That would be nice. <laughs> I hope that's... <laughs> Here's you've to documented that. the past. Let's pretend that you've just written the future. <laughs> well, Bob... Bob Ostertag, thank you so much for talking to me about this. And Bob's book is Sex, Science, Self. The Social History of Estrogen, Testosterone, and Identity. And uh, every, everyone should read it. Required reading for anyone interested in this issue. Thanks so much, Bob. And thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your, your uh, interest. <laughs>